Hello, and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Helen McKenna. I'm a senior policy advisor here at the King's Fund, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, we're doing something a little bit different to our normal format. We're going to be sitting down with just one guest, something we'll be doing from time to time on the podcast. And the idea behind this is to talk to a range of leaders in health and care to understand their leadership journey, to understand what makes them great leaders and also discuss their views on the big challenges in the health and care sector. So I'm honoured to be joined today by Lord Victor Adebowale, who has worked on a wide range of issues in his career, all of which are relevant to health. Victor, welcome to the King's Fund podcast. Thank you very much. The honour's all mine, I think. (laughs) As an introduction, can you tell us a bit more about who you are and what you do? Crikey, that's an introduction that could last quite a while. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm the Chief Executive of Turning Point, which is a social enterprise that provides um, health and social care interventions for people at the sharp end of the inverse care law, basically. We we, um, operate in about 260-odd places in England, uh, we employ uh, 3,580 staff in those locations and we provide services across mental health, um, learning disabilities, substance misuse, the odd primary care service and all points in between. Wow, so a huge job. Tell us a little bit more about day-to-day life as Chief Exec. I don't spend every day doing podcasts at the King's yeah. Fund. <laughs> Uh, as chief exec, um, I deal with bad news, yeah. <laughs> and every now and then there's good news. So yeah. my days are filled with phone calls and emails and visits to services, and um, I have fantastic people in my team. I know chief execs always say that, but I really do, and they run the business. My job is to add value, yeah. and I do that by understanding um, where the business is going and triangulating information and um, synthesizing that and asking mm-hmm. good questions mm-hmm. and you know preparing for the future trying to stay trying to stay ahead of the now actually so you're also a non-exec director at nhs england mm. tell me what is a ned and what's it like sitting on the nhs england board so non-executive directors are just that we are not executives mm-hmm. i we don't have direct day-to-day operational responsibility mm. for the business but what we do have responsibility for is owning the strategy of that business, i.e. what is going to happen next or where are we going, yeah. uh, and the choices that fall out of that question, mm-hmm. and the values of the business. You know, What do we stand for um, and what don't we stand for? Okay, that's right. And we have legal responsibilities. So when things go wrong, we need to have... Um, coherent answers. And so, you know, you talk about the values and the importance of setting the strategy. What's your experience of doing that in in NHS England? Well, like most large, complex organisations, it's challenging. And it was formed as a result of a huge shift in um, health and social care policy and, and done in record time. I mean, six years I've been on the board, but it took there's 18 months forming the structures and as the last chief executive of the NHS pointed out the reforms could be seen from space and um, so there's been a lot of moving parts attempt to formulate a whole picture or a whole statue in very short space of time Mm. so it's been it's been like building an aeroplane in midair and that's quite challenging and the political environment has also shifted and changed Mm. and ebbed and flowed with varying degrees of alacrity so yeah it's it's been it's been challenging um, and and I think will be for the next whoever replaces me 
And in some ways, it sounds like you're saying NHS England has basically had this huge task of trying to recover from the impact of the Lansley reforms. Is yeah, that what well, you're saying it spent its time? Well, I think my, my personal view is just yeah. that. I mean, it, it's been trying to stay whole yeah. against a policy which was in favour of fragmentation. Yeah. Now, whether that was the intention of the policy, it certainly has had that effect. Mm-hmm. And so the risk created by the health and social care bill, and there were some issues before then, was that this, the, we were moving towards becoming a system anyway rather than a service in, yeah. in the sense of a hierarchical structure. There was lots of push towards becoming a system. Health and social care bill gave that a real boost. Mm-hmm. The problem is that, you know, yeah. how do you remain coherent if you dissipate? And the risk to the central tenet of the NHS, which is health and social care, but certainly health, yeah. free at the point of access, and quality being consistent throughout the country. So the health and social care bill, I think, injected a huge amount of... Um, it depends on which where you come from. You could argue creativity or chaos mm. into the system. Yeah. And so, actually, it sounds like you're saying NHS England's strategy has been one of survival and preservation of a coherent well, NHS system. Yeah. Is I that... mean, yeah. I mean, I would say it's been it's been it's been both those things. Yeah. And an attempt to map the future. Yeah. So, you know, the five-year forward yeah, view. Absolutely. It's been an attempt to pull some coherence out of, I think, what many perceived as potentially chaotic yeah. situation and to retain the focus on its purpose. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about leadership. What are your values as a leader and those values that drove you into the roles that you've held? I mean, I have a number of principles that have driven my professional choices. Mm-hmm. The first is Julian Tudor Hart, um, God rest his soul, but uh, expressed it beautifully actually in his inverse care law. <laughs> you know, those people in need of health and social care the most tend to get it the least. You can apply that to virtually everything. <laughs> so <laughs> pretty much. When you say everything, everything, everything? Well, virtually everything, yeah, yeah, virtually everything. So okay. those people in need of justice the most tend yeah. to get it the least. Those people in need of Money the most tend to go at the least, et cetera, et cetera. So it's certainly the case in health and social care. And mm-hmm. my concern is that it will become the case. So the NHS was started by poor people in Tradiga yeah. for poor people. <laughs> the middle classes and the wealthy have benefited as a direct result of that over the 70 years of the NHS. What I don't want to see is a situation where the NHS becomes a service which was established by the poor, yeah. for the poor, that benefits the middle classes and the rich. And do you think that that's where it's At the expense of the poor. Well, it's a risk. You only have to look at the gap between active life expectancy in middle-class areas and middle-class people, it's 70. In poor areas, poor people, it's 50. That's Mm -hmm. a 20-year difference. Unacceptable. It should make people angry because that was not the purpose for which the NHS was formed. So that's one of the things that drives my professional choices. Yeah. The other is that I just think leadership is about what happens when you're not in the room. So it's not about being present. It's about influencing others to lead, mm-hmm. basically. And I do believe in the leader as servant. I don't believe that it's about me. It's about my ability to, or the ability of any leader, to take people from where they are to where they haven't been yet. That's really interesting. But you define where they need to go. Well, sometimes. But actually, I'm, I'm always suspicious of 
of people who was a, there was a particularly Western form of leadership, usually uh, white and usually male, in yeah. which the leader stands on the hill and says, over there, you yeah. know. But actually, lots of those, that formulation of direction is obtained as a result or should be obtained as a result of listening to lots of, other, of, lots of people yeah. and observing where we need to go. Mm-hmm. So the consolidation of a strategy or a plan to go there is usually as a result, acknowledged or not, and should be as a result of listening and knowing and sensing and taking in data mm-hmm. and information and consolidating that into a positional statement about the future direction yeah. in the hope that you will get followership. Right? And that's the complicated bit. Yeah. But I'm wary of the notion of people waking up with a vision. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that that never happens, but generally... Uh, visions are formed as a result, even vi- you know, formed as a result of information data taken in through the unconscious and becoming all that sort of stuff. I think it's a much more interactive process than we give it credit for. Yeah. And certainly in the West, we have a particular form of lead guitar leadership, which can sometimes make a very pleasant noise, but mm. in other in other occasions is simply ear splitting. And so, in terms of interactive leadership, I assume you mean both the staff that work with you and for you and also your clients who you Yeah, serve. I mean my I mean my staff work work with me because you know, yeah. they they honestly mo- most of them that could don't have to work with me <laughs> they can make choices and they do yeah. I suppose what I'm referring to is the is this notion of system leadership yeah. which has become very fashionable and in the NHS these things become um, NHS and social care have noticed that these terms become mm-hmm. adapted to what people want them to be rather than what they actually are. But system leadership involves a leader learning on behalf of a system rather than being the only the omphalus of all learning. That's really interesting. I was reading something that you'd written, mm. I think, a while back Always about system leadership for... Mm. I think it was for the King's Fund, actually. Oh, right. You've been okay. talking to Nick Timmins. Oh, yes, yes, um, yes I think yes. we did a publication yes, a few you, you years did, ago. Yes, you did, yeah, yeah. And... They, they were interviewing you because actually in your role at Turning Point, you mm. kind of are already doing system leadership. Mm. Well. Whereas in the NHS, as you pointed out, system leadership has is, is kind of um, become very fashionable as a mm. term. But actually what you do in the services that you provide to your client group, they span so many different service boundaries and sectors. What is system leadership to you and what do you need to do to well, get it right? Well, the fact of the matter is that the implications of being a system leader are quite profound for the leader. Mm. So you are in a situation... I don't think I am a system leader. I'm trying to be. Okay. And I think it involves being humble enough to know what you don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, there's lots I don't know. Because you can't possibly be first, everywhere. Well, you can't, and yeah. you can't know everything. Yeah. And and that's, that's, a, that's a problem, because we live in a world where leaders, particularly of public organisations, are expected to know everything. Mm. And and so they basically lie. (laughs) They say they pretend to know everything, and it's impossible for them to know everything. That's impossible. I'm happy to admit that I don't know everything, so I I need to learn. And if I'm not learning, then no one else is. So the first thing is you need to learn. Mm -hmm. You need to be humble enough to learn. Second thing is that, you know, my role at Turning Point it, whether Turning Point is is large enough to be a system, I think it is because it's distributed mm-hmm. um, across you know geographies and across services, as you said. So that implies that the leadership needs to be systemic; it needs to understand the system. But more to the point, I exist at the boundary between Turning Point and other organisations yeah. in local government, in the NHS, in national government, and system leadership is about being at the boundaries. Mm-hmm. It's not about uh, protecting boundaries. Mm-hmm of which there is a lot of 
protecting boundaries in both the health and social care system usually with the with the uh, with finance being the excuse my yeah. budget your budget etc system leadership involves risking opening boundaries mm-hmm. uh, more porous boundaries in the interests of the individuals that pay for all this yeah so you know at the end of the day the system leaders need to understand that they are that they need to work at the boundaries, mm-hmm. which is a really difficult place to be because you have to protect. You have to protect. Is the wrong term, but you have to be cognizant of the purpose of your organisation mm-hmm. in relation to in relation to others. Yeah. So there's terms like betrayal and uh, become quite common in that in the system leadership world. But actually, it's about knowing what the end point of all this yeah. is about yeah. and being it's about building relationships um, yeah. and i guess that's the third point actually it's about knowing that relationships tend to get um are more important than objectives absolutely and so where do you think the nhs is on that journey in terms of i guess particularly provider chief hospital provider chief execs and the challenges they are facing in terms of having to do this shift to system leadership. Do you think well, they're, they're making the progress? They're on a journey. Yeah. Some are, some aren't. Yeah. You know, they're on a journey. Uh, I, my experience is that it's not just about hospitals. You know, it's not just about the hospitals or the acutes. It's about the interface with local government. Yeah. It's about the interface with communities. Absolutely. It's about the interface with organisations like mine. Let me mm-hmm. give you an example, mm-hmm. precisely of what I mean. Uh, Turning Point operates in in locations where the people that we work with are the illest people walking. Yeah. Any iller and you are in hospital, yeah. right? So an individual comes to our substance misuse service coughing their lungs out and I employ doctors, GPs, specialist GPs mm-hmm. and GPs and nurses and consultant psychiatrists. This individual comes into our service and I assume that they're that we're able to prescribe antibiotics and look after their cough and look after their in one place we can't yeah so we have to refer that person to a primary care service mm. to which they're unlikely to go yeah. even if they're registered which means that they're going to end up in a hospital suffering mm. possibly dying at great expense to the taxpayer when in fact we could have prevented all that yeah. in one place with now, better outcomes that's for the person. better outcomes for the person yeah. better outcomes for the health system better outcomes for the country now that happens thousands and thousands of times yeah. in a place yeah we are the creation of the wrong kind of demand in A and E. Yeah. The lack of system leadership means that CCGs rarely contract. In fact, I haven't got one contract with the CCG where they've sat down with me and said, "Look, how do we stop these people coming into A and E by providing yeah. them with a holistic health response where they are, Victor? Yeah. Just ask that question. Now, that's a system leadership view." And how do we learn how to do that? What would that tell us that would help the system, both locally and nationally, about how you work with people at the, at the sharp end of the inverse care law? Now, that, that's a system, that's a practical example of how system leadership should work. And it's also an example about how it rarely does. And given how you do work with people on the sharp end who are coming to you with those you know, multiple problems that need a whole system response, how frustrating is it that the system isn't yet able to deal with those people, particularly as the consequences for people like that are going to be, are going to be incredibly well, bad? Well, it's very frustrating. Yeah. I mean, not only is it very frustrating, but it's also very expensive. Yeah. So I refer you to work done by the um, by York University Centre for Health Economics on this mm. very subject. I've shared the paper with Simon Stevens and others. 
where they've worked out that the cost to the NHS of not providing services that would prevent their need to be in hospital in communities, mm. the cost just in hospital admissions alone, like A&E, not the rest of it, just A&E, is $4.8 billion. Wow. So you're looking at 25% nearly of the 20-odd billion we've got to save, yeah. resulting from a lack of system leadership and a lack of focus on what I consider to be low-hanging fruit. Mm. So a lot of the cost in the health and social care system is driven by negative value transfer, mm. i.e. people going to several different places for the same thing, mm. when in fact, as much as possible, needs to be dealt with in one place in front of one or two people. Yeah. And that is hugely frustrating and massively expensive and, frankly, immoral. Yeah, and with, with serious consequences for those people who, like you say, aren't going to then go on and take themselves to the yeah. GP for the prescription that they need. No, but even if they do, the yeah. notion of negative value transfer applies to primary care as it does to any other service. Yeah. OK, obviously you have many roles, many hats. Yeah. Um, you're a full-time senior leader. You're also a dad, is that right? I'm busy. You're yeah, busy. Yeah, I am a father, yeah, yeah. yeah. How do you Very manage those different roles? Mm. And also, how do you relax? How do you look after yourself? How do I chill? Well, to be honest, when people ask me the question, how do I manage this? I'm often tempted to ask the uh, answer by saying, I don't really. I mean, the people, I have very understanding people. And, I, you know, I'm, I do look after myself. These roles are coherent in my mind. They're not yeah. different things. They're yeah. all focused, as we've discussed. So I, I have understanding friends, understanding wife, yeah. and really cool kids. I mean, <laughs> that's the only way it works. You know, it's not about what I do; it's about what they understand. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I do spend time with them, and they're all right. You know, they're cool. They 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 understand they why I do it. Yeah, yeah, okay. what I'm about. But it sounds like yeah, it's your your whole life approach brings all of those things in. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm very lucky. I mean, I live in I live in a first world country. You know, I'm, I'm paid well. You know, yeah. what have I got to complain about? As for relaxation, well, I like to read. Yeah. <laughs> I like to read, I like to spend time with friends, collect the odd graphic novel. And is it true that you play the saxophone? Really badly. Okay. Everyone in life should do something that's <laughs> worth doing, and if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. I totally agree with doing things, doing some things in your life very badly. Yeah. I'm an, I, I've perfected that, actually, on several Okay, do you play an instrument? Fronts. I do play, I right. do play an instrument. Okay. Yeah, I play and? the piano, and oh, I sing. Oh, do you? All right, okay, that'll sound And I sing very badly. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. great. And, you know, you and I enjoy doing that. That's exactly work. the point. That's exactly yeah. the point. So... We've talked a bit about different elements of health policy and the impact on service users. I wanted to ask you, given you've been in NHS England, I think, since 2014, and you've seen the impact of various big pieces of policy, tell me about what you think the impact of the five-year forward view has been on your on the client group that you work with at Turning hmm. Point. Well, I think the five-year forward view has yet to spread. Mm-hmm. Its intentions were clear. Yeah. Its impact is yet to be felt, I think, everywhere. The the NHS is a universal service, so the five-year forward view with a universal plan, it has to have a universal impact. It's yet to have that impact. Uh, The example that I told you Mm -hmm. is is an example that exists, so we've got some way to go, I think. I mean, if, if I was to say what I'm leaving NHS England with, it's a sense that they understand inequality, Mm -hmm. not inequity actually, which we need to understand more about. The Mm -hmm. two are different. 
and the impact of inequality, both financially and morally and, you know, in health and social care outcomes, yeah. that needs to be reflected in the next plan. I think the other thing that I'd like to think has happened in the lifetime of the five-year plan is that we've started to understand the impact of diversity. Yes. Now, you would expect a six-foot black guy to talk about diversity, but actually, it's not my problem. Mm. I'm used to living with it, both yeah. negative and positive. But it is a problem for the NHS. And for the people it serves. And for the people it serves and for the leadership of the NHS. Mm -hmm. For these reasons, what we know about organisations is that diversity of thought and uh, cognitive diversity is, uh, is one of the predicators of success. In the terms of the NHS, that should be obvious. <laughs> but we also know that it impacts directly on the quality of patient care, both mm-hmm. in the community and in hospitals. Yeah. So I would hope that the Five Year Forward View started a conversation about that, and certainly Simon Stevens has indicated his leadership of that issue. So in short, I would say the Five Year Forward View started a conversation. Yeah. It's indicated some changes, certainly through the vanguards, mm-hmm. um, of which there are examples in, in pockets around the country, certainly around um, elderly care mm-hmm. and primary care. But it's yet to become normative. It's yet to become the shift, the the thing. And some of those notions need to be taken forward into the next five-year view and in the next 10-year view, because otherwise what we have is episodic change, which is not very useful. So, yeah, it needs to be part of a broader strategy. Exactly. And you mentioned the long-term plan, having a strategy that tries to sort out inequalities Mm. and also diversity. What else does the long-term plan need to... Well, it needs to reverse the inverse care law. Right. I mean, there's two views which I've come to understand. Mm. There's my view, which is that you need to focus on those people at the sharp end. Mm. The test of any policy, of any strategy, of any service design must be, does it impact positively on those that are furthest away from health and social care. Yeah. If it doesn't, it's the wrong policy. Yeah. So that if that if you know the intention should be to do that, if the process doesn't match the intention, you're in the wrong place, right? Mm-hmm. There's another view which just says the rising tide lifts all ships. So yes, by all means pay attention to the sharp end of the inverse care law, but actually focus on on the bigger picture, on on hitting the targets. Mm. So the problem I have with that is that the evidence is that it doesn't quite work. So if you look at cancer, for instance, we're doing really well. Mm. I mean, Calipalm, brilliant, you know, in terms of the the cancer program. However, I'm told reliably that if you live in any one of the poorest bits of the UK, well, in England, Mm. you are still more likely to have your cancer diagnosed in A&E so there's a question for me about the impact. If you are black or from a minority ethnic group, mm-hmm. not only will your experience of cancer care be worse, but your outcomes will be worse. And that is the case across all the disease priorities that we've set. Yeah. So that begs a question about the design of those programs, Absolutely. the intention, the process and the outcomes. And that potentially also comes back to the leadership point as the well. Cost, the cost. The, diver- di- the diversity of leadership. Yeah, it does. But, you know, those are, I think the, the challenge is that I, I, I sense there are two opposing views. Mm. I take one view. Yeah. The system, I suspect, takes another. Yeah. And, and just back to, because we, we talked about diversity in, in NHS leadership and obviously the impact that it has on the service and on patients and mm. on outcomes. Where do you think we're 
headed on that. I know that Simon Stevens takes it seriously. There's the Workforce Race Equality mm. Standard mm. headed by Yvonne Coghill. Mm. Do you think we're going in the right direction? Well, I mean, I worked on the creation of the Workforce Race Equality Standard and the development of the RES and Yvonne Coghill. And I have to tell you, it wasn't easy. Yeah. It was one of the one of the hardest things I've done really? in 30 years because I think it met with a lot of resistance. Okay. Some For some good reasons and for a lot of not so good reasons. But it's here now mm-hmm. and we need to put our weight behind it. And number 10 have taken interest in it. The NHS England's taken interest in it. So the signs, the signs are good. However, I am concerned and I think about the res remaining consistent and being supported both in terms of resource and leadership as we go through the next set of changes. Yeah. Um, NHSE merging with so NHSI, the implications of the five-year forward view, the five-year plan and the mm. 10-year plan, these things are not resolved in a couple of years. They require yeah. consistent, long-term leadership. So my concern is that the res gets that leadership. It's already starting to make change, mm. and it's already started to work with people in systems, but we need to maintain that that leadership. So on the race equality standard, do you think that the system gets it now, though, in terms of protecting, hoping that it survives in, through any changes? I don't know. Yeah. That is the short answer. I honestly don't know. I look around me and I really worry about whether the system has got it. The research that I've read about how change happens around diversity, some aspects of it are quite depressing yeah. because some of it's about power. Yeah. And there are there are people in the system who really feel strongly that they're not going to give up power. Mm. I don't see it like that, but it's about power. Yeah. And you have to ask the question of a system which is predominantly led by men, white men of a certain age, over a period of 70 years as to what that's about. I ask the question why we've never had a black chief nurse ever in 70 years of the NHS. My mum was a nurse for 40 years. What is going on? Mm. So anybody who thinks that this is an easy shift is fooling themselves. And there are people who hang on to power regardless. They feel it is theirs by right. And in large systems like the NHS, I'm afraid that is also true. So regardless of the evidence, and regardless of the ev- that evidence being absolutely clear about the benefits to patients, the system, money, leadership, mm. there are people who feel that it's a political question. Mm. And for them, that political question is about their right to be a, a holder of power. Yeah, That's really challenging and challenging for individuals who have that power isn't it well it's challenging certainly challenging for individuals who have that power Um, and I have some sympathy for them actually Mm. but I've got more sympathy for the people who who need the NHS and need the NHS to work absolutely so you started out in housing associations Mm. uh, local government housing local government and now you work across many different services including health I guess I'm I'm, I'm interested in the impact of the wider determinants on health and your experience of seeing that firsthand Mm. I am staggered actually I mean I find it amazing that we know so much about the determinants of health We, we know so much and yet I don't know whether it's a political blind spot or a policy blind spot, mm-hmm. or a culture blind spot, we've yet to integrate that in our thinking. We we haven't yet done enough. Mm. And there is an interface between public policy. So if you take alcohol, for instance, we know that pricing affects consumption. Yeah. We know that. Yeah. And yet, <laughs> we've not done anything about yeah. it. We know that gambling 
is a you know one of the key determinants yeah. around mental health. We know that alcohol, we know that drugs, we know that poverty, yeah. we know that the welfare benefit system actually generates dis-ease mm. mentally and physically. We know all this. We know the education system contributes to, can mitigate towards or against healthy really uh, emotional good. well-being. We know all this. And, and yet, yet. <laughs> and yet, so I think we're a long way from having a situation where every public service needs to be measured on its contribution to the well-being of its users. Yeah. And when you say well-being, <laughs> you mean in, the, in its kind of wider sense? In the wider sense. sense. Yeah. And the NHS has been carrying a heavy load for 70 years. Yeah. And that I don't think it can carry that load much longer. And the execution mover is what we know about the determinants of health. Yeah. It's not about hospitals. Yeah. <laughs> it really isn't. It's the last, last thing it's about is hospitals. It's about what happens in the community. Yeah. So we need a set of measures, and this is for you um, policy people, you know, smarter people than me, that actually force public services to show what their contribution is to mm-hmm. the health and well-being of the people that use them as a prerequisite for our investment in them. Yeah. You know, if they're not doing that and they can't show what their yeah. positive measure is in a locality, in a system, why are we paying for it? So well-being in every policy should yeah. be built if in. you're going to have yeah. an education system or yeah. a school or whatever, What's it part doing? of its measure should yeah. be, you know, what is it? Are we impro- are, you know, are kids leaving a school uh, going straight into the mental health system? Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there is uh, is the social care system or the or the welfare system generating disease locally, nationally? Those are measures that every leader of a public health system or a public service should be held accountable for. And if the negative is in the negative, then the question should be asked: Why are we paying for you? Yeah, because it's not just about money. It's about how some of these systems are run. Yeah. designed, it's about the leadership, and it's about the money, but actually those things need to be, uh, people should be held accountable for. It's like, well, why would we do it any other way? Especially when we're pour, potentially pouring money and effort into the wrong well, it's, bits. You're right? pouring money into a leaky bucket. Mm. It's wasting my money, it's wasting your money. So there's something about the NHS being part of a discussion about how we design measures for services that assist us in spending less, mm. <laughs> basically, yeah. on health. It's about well-being. It's about healthy. It's about staying healthy for as long as possible. It's not about having a service which is pushed to being an almost a universal urgent care system. What's your biggest fear and greatest hope for the long-term plan, the NHS long-term plan that's due to be published? Well, I'll say that the five-year the five year forward view was successful in getting some money. My view is that that argument was too hard. It's obvious, right? Health is actually an economic benefit. The NHS is a huge economic benefit. So, well done, Simon. We got the money. My fear is that it becomes all about money and it all becomes about cuts and we lose the, the sense of purpose, right? The, the money is a symptom of behavior. Yeah. So that my fear is that it becomes an argument about slicing and dicing. Mm rather than intention, purpose, vision, outcomes. My hope is that we develop in this country a vision for a holistic health and social care system that's truly integrated and that is focused on reversing the inverse care law because what we know historically and what is evidence-based is that if you do that, 
everybody benefits. And you'll have seen some drafts, presumably, because obviously it's, it must be almost My written lips are by sealed. now. I don't know what Do you know if it's on, on a trajectory to I, delivering your hope? I would, if I, I couldn't, you know, I'd have to kill you, I'm afraid. Uh. I, couldn't, I, couldn't, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly, you might possibly think that, I could not comment. Well then, I think, Victor, you've brought the <laughs> podcast to a beautiful yeah. ending. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for being here today. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Thanks. you very much. Well, that's it from us. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes. And if you have feedback or ideas for topics you'd like to hear covered in future episodes, then please get in touch either on Twitter at The King's Fund or my account at Helena Macarena. Or you can leave feedback on our website, which is www.kingsfund.org.uk. Hope you can join us next time. Thank you for listening.